When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Let's do a definition today. Um, the word is benthic. Now, benthic is an adjective, and it refers to uh, or occurring at the bottom of a body of water. The benthic zone is the ecological region at the lowest level of a body of water, such as the ocean, lake, or stream, including the sediment surface and subsurface layers. The name comes from the ancient Greek, meaning the depths. Okay, so you know where we're going today, right? The benthic regions of our aquariums are just tremendously fascinating to me. They've been surprisingly neglected in the aquarium hobby for many, many years, with only passing thought given to how we replicate aspects of the substrate found in the natural habitats of our fishes. Now, if you recall, if you're a follower of the tent, you recall several years back, our friend Mike Tucanari shared some amazing photos he took underwater in the Rio Negro region, which we featured in our blog, The Tint. Not only were the photos simply cool to look at, they gave us a ton of ideas on how to create natural looking and natural functioning scenes uh, on an underwater basis, especially the idea of the substrate and the water column interacting together. And in my mind, this validated the aesthetic and the sort of craft of the botanical-influenced aquarium as a more realistic, functional representation of what you might encounter at the bottom or lower levels of the water column in a habitat like Amazonia. I mean, these things really, really blew my mind, these pictures. Yeah, we're talking about the bottom again. Yeah, it's something we take for granted in most aquariums. It's sand and a few rocks, and well, that's it, right? Yet nature is radically different, isn't it? It sure is. The two things that really struck me about Mike's images, and I encourage you to kind of go back and look at some of them throughout the years. We have them on our Instagram feed and so forth. But um, the two things that really struck me about these images were that the amount of botanical material accumulating on the bottom of these streams is significant and quite diverse. Sure, the dominant materials present are leaves, yet there are significant quantities of stuff like seed pods, roots, bark, and tree branches. And the interesting thing that I noticed is that the majority of the fishes present in these environments truly seem to interact with them, utilizing the botanical materials as either foraging areas, hiding places, or nurseries. Now, sure, you do see fishes such as kerosens schooling in open water near the surface in these, you know, agapo and other forest, flooded forest areas. But a surprisingly large number of fishes present seem to associate very closely with the botanical cover itself on the bottom of these bodies of water. And I noticed this kind of behavior with fishes like my epistogramma. Uh, they'll come out into the water column, but prefer not to stray very far from the leaves and the botanical materials at the bottom of the aquarium. Now, it's no secret that many episto breeders use catapa leaves and, you know, stuff like that pretty extensively in their tanks, ostensibly to help impart, you know, beneficial tannin and humic substances into the water. But from a more functional standpoint, they provide the same level 
you know, of comfort, protection, spawning areas, and foraging as they do in the wild. It's a perfect example of how configuring an aquarium for your fishes can bring out their natural behaviors. The idea of creating a more natural, structural, and ecological environment for our fishes within the aquarium is like foundational, right? Now, there's something extremely simple about the concept, yet I suspect that many of us aquarists approach the design of our aquariums from a purely aesthetic standpoint. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but think of how interesting it is to consider the actual lifestyles of the fishes that we keep and how more closely replicating the benthic structures can foster the natural behaviors that we crave while still creating an amazing aesthetic. It'll help us reconsider the materials which we use at the bottom of our aquariums. Indeed, it'll inspire us to rethink about how we view the substrate layers of our tanks altogether. Now, for many of us, the literal foundation of our aquariums has been, and still is, sand or gravels. It's been that way for most of the century of the modern aquarium keeping era. Now, sure, there's been variations in grades, sand types, and origins, and colors, but basically it's the same stuff we've had, you know, forever. Sands and gravels are a good simulation of the materials found at the bottom of many natural habitats. However, I think we have to accept that many aquatic habitats aren't simply sand and gravel, our sort of idealized, sanitized version of what the bottom should be. When you consider natural waters and the impact of the substrate, the story gets even more interesting. In rivers such as the Amazon, the Rio Xingo, the Orinoco, you'll find the materials that originate in the mountains and the highlands up in the Andes, and they gradually work their way downstream, influencing the aquatic environment chemically, physically, and geographically. The materials are influenced by the currents and the water movement, and they tend to sort themselves out and reorganize over time. To simulate this dynamic, it pays to do a little research on the specific environment that you're looking to replicate. Some parts of the Amazon, for example, are just replete with larger particles of material, even rock with a fine covering of sand, and of course leaves and stuff work their way in there. Now studies have shown that particle sizes tend to decrease the further downstream from the source that they're found. That makes sense, right? Large rivers like the Amazon have beds of you know shifting sands slowly transported with the currents, and typically, the larger the item, you know, a pebble, a rock, or boulder, whatever, the longer it tends to stay in one place. So in a more powerful flow, you're more likely to find larger sized materials. So history lesson. Yeah, where in the world would you gain a mini history lesson on substrates, right? The first recorded observations of substrate bed material in the Amazon River were made in 1843 by a Lieutenant William Lewis Herndon of the U.S. Navy when he traveled the river from its headwaters to its mouth, sounding the depths and noting the nature of the particles that were caught in a heavy grease smeared to the bottom of his sounding weight, and he reported that the bed material of the river was mostly, quote, sand and fine gravel. Now, uh, two scientists by the name of Altman and Ames took samples at a few locations in 1963 and 1964 and reported the bed material at Obidos, Brazil, to be, quote, fine sands with medium diameters ranging from 0.15 to 0.25 millimeters. Okay, not some real breakthrough knowledge there, I know, but the point is, Many of the large rivers and their tributaries that we obsess over have mixed sizes of sands and gravels on the bottom. Yet, as hobbyists, we've generally employed a single size of substrate material in our tank, just a homogenous blend of sand and gravel. There's a lot to the science of naturally graded materials, and you'll have to do some research on the subject. Now, in the end, science can tell you a lot. However, creativity and your aesthetic taste are typically the guidelines that you'll embrace to assemble your own little slice of the bottom, right? Now, with an abundance of commercially available substrate materials on the market, it's easier than ever to replicate cool little segments of the natural habitats. Now, 
Take a sort of holistic approach to constructing the substrate in your aquarium. Look into the practical and the aesthetic aspects of your materials and how you'd combine the permanent materials, you know, gravels and sand and stuff like that, with the more transient materials, botanicals, leaves, etc. It's a lot of fun, it's really engaging, and it can almost create a little hobby within a hobby. And yeah, the transient materials part, that's re is really fascinating to me. Now, in many of the slower moving waters where the sediment sorting has already occurred, you'll find an accumulation of softer, more ephemeral materials like leaves, twigs, seed pods, sediments, etc. over a bed of sand. This is not unusual. Sometimes these accumulations of materials can be quite deep, a, a meter or more. In areas such as the Pantanal, as related by our friend Ty Streitman, the decomposing materials, often terrestrial plant parts and stuff like that, can be extremely deep, several meters deep. What goes on in these deep beds of decomposing botanical materials? Well, a lot, I think. It's something that I keep coming back to because the idea of utilizing botanicals in your aquarium substrate keeps, you know, tantalizing me with its performance and potential benefits. I think that there's certainly some processing of nutrients by the resident organisms, the microfauna and the and, uh, macrofauna, and likely even, wait for it, denitrification that occurs in the deeper, deeper layers. And of course, the layer of botanical materials itself provides a fertile habitat for a variety of organisms of various sizes, which contribute to the larger food web of the habitat, i.e. the aquarium. So if we focus on natural features like the shallow tributaries of streams and flooded forest floors, which are my own personal areas of obsession, it's important to note that the volume of water entering the stream helps in part determine the amount and the size of the sediment particles, the leaves, the branches, and the seed pods, and all that stuff that can be carried along and thus comprise the substrate and even its contours. So the mixing of materials not only kind of looks interesting, it's a reflection of the diversity and for that matter, the vibrancy of the underwater environment. One of the things you notice in all the images that we share with you of the natural underwater substrates is that they're usually anything but squeaky clean, ultra white sand. Rather, they're often sediment filled, covered with stringy fungal growths, biofilms, and even a spot of algae or two. There's a fair amount of detritus accumulated in the substrate materials. And as you know, detritus is not the enemy that we've made it out to be. Rather, it's a source of food for many aquatic animals, helping to literally power the ecosystem in which it's present. There's something that we can and should absolutely replicate in our aquariums, and it's the accumulation of substrates, uh, sediments in the substrate. We don't be afraid of sediments and even detritus accumulating on top and within your leaves and botanicals. It's exactly what you see in nature, and our fishes are ecologically adapted to these types of habitats or the presence of these materials in their habitats. In nature, the composition of bottom materials and the depth of the channels that they're found in are always changing in response to the flow in a given stream, affecting the composition and the ecology in all kinds of ways. Some of these changes are actually the result of the fishes, you know, working them. And I'm going to quote you in the words of uh, our friend Mike Tucanardi in an article he wrote not too many years back. He said, one of the things that's most striking when you spend time below the water's surface in this sort of environment is that the fish aren't just passive inhabitants. They're actively involved with their habitat, interacting in a very particular way. Epistogramma species aren't just hanging out. They're fighting turf wars among piles of dense leaf litter and making their own piles by moving leaves and other bits of detritus to the center of their territories. Suckermouth catfish, whether Farlowella or Ancestris, are actively exploring recently submerged branches and roots looking for a rich patch of biofilm or algae to feast on. Earth eaters and many other species of cichlids, even Severums, Angels, and Discus, 
are patrolling the bottom, taking big mouthfuls of sand and organic materials to sift out any tasty morsels. It's a big organic mess, literally made up of various botanicals, and these fish are having a field day in it. So that's pretty cool, right? Now, these really dynamic habitats are not difficult to replicate in the aquarium. In fact, we've been doing it here at Tannin in our community for several years, right? Many of you are playing along with that too. We need to understand that the substrate plays a huge functional and aesthetic role in the overall aquarium environment, as we touched on many, many times here. Realizing that placing leaves and botanical materials on the bottom of the aquarium is not simply making an aesthetic statement is a big breakthrough. Rather, it's an homage to the function of the dynamic habitats that we love so much. Now, feeding dynamics plays a huge role in the interactions which fishes have with the bottom. As we've talked about many times, aquatic invertebrates and crustaceans are one of the primary foods consumed by many fishes which reside in tropical habitats, and the amount and type are dictated by the environment of the habitat, which includes factors like the surrounding topography, current in the water, elevation, surrounding plant growth, etc., etc. Now, many fishes like headstanders, kerosens, and others simply consume tiny crustaceans as part of their sediment feeding activity. Now that we're more likely to set up aquariums with fine, silty sediments stocked perhaps with little copepods and worms and stuff, we're liable to see more natural behaviors. These experiments may yield very, very interesting results. The idea of pre-stocking your tank is something that I think we should all investigate. I think it's something that is incredibly interesting, potentially beneficial, and very, very cool. Now, it's absolutely possible to create a real, I guess we call it an active substrate filled with these little creatures and be able to pre-stock it with cultures of small life forms prior to the introduction of the fishes. And of course, there's ways to replenish the population of these creatures and even the substrate itself periodically, resulting in extremely productive systems as well. An interesting experiment to think about, right? Even more interesting to actually execute. Could such a system with a heavy substrate-centric focus be successfully managed long-term? Absolutely, for sure. A well-managed substrate in which food and fecal material is not allowed to accumulate in the excess and in which you know, regular nutrient export processes are embraced, it's, it's, makes it not an issue. When other good practices of aquarium husbandry, like you know, not overcrowding, not overfeeding, etc., are employed, I'm confident in asserting that botanically enriched substrates can enhance, not inhibit, the nutrient processing within your aquarium and maintain water quality for extended periods of time. Now, you're likely aware of the fact that we're crazy about small, shallow bodies of water, right? I mean, I talk about this crap all the time, and almost every fish geek is like, I don't know, genetically programmed to find virtually any random body of water anywhere irresistible. We especially love little rivulets and pools and creeks and forest streams, the, the kinds which have an accumulation of leaves and botanical materials on the bottom, you know, darker water, submerged branches, all that stuff, you know, the kind where you're going to find little fishes. Happily, these types of environments exist all over the world, leaving us just no shortage of inspiring places to attempt to replicate. Like, they're everywhere you look. In Africa, for example, many of these little streams and pools are homes to some of the favorite fishes of mine, killifish. Of particular interest are the fishes of the genus Apoplates. These little fishes are really good at hiding, and they're quite adept at it in these little bodies of water with their you know, root tangles and submerged vegetation and leaves. And in these shallow bodies of water, the substrate plays right along with the submerged roots and other materials. Many of these little jungle streams are really, really shallow. 
cutting very gently through accumulation of leaves and forest debris, and many of them are seasonal. The great Killy documenter and collector, Colonel Jorgen Scheel, precisely described the water conditions found in their habitat as, quote, rather hot, shallow, usually stagnant, and probably soft and acid. Ah, well, we knew this territory pretty well. We still do, don't we? I think that we do. And understanding this type of habitat has lots of implications for creating really cool biotope-inspired aquariums. So why not make some for killifish? I think that'd be a lot of fun. So for the most part, these fishes are found in very shallow jungle streams. How shallow? Well, reports I've seen stated that they were shallow as two inches, which is about five centimeters. That's really, really shallow, like seriously shallow. And quite frankly, I'd call that more of a rivulet than a stream. Again, virtually still with barely perceptible current was one description. That kind of makes my case like what you'd expect to see when a small stream overflows its banks and creates a smaller pool or body of water. Now, what does this mean for those of us who keep aquariums? Well, it gives us some inspiration. Ideas for aquariums that attempt to replicate and study these really compelling, shallow, substrate-centric environments. And the interaction between the substrate and the rest of the aquatic environment is that much more interesting and pronounced than these small little bodies of water. Now, an important consideration when you're contemplating replicating one of these in your tanks is to consider just how these little streams form. Typically, they're either a small tributary of a larger stream with a path you know, carved out in the adjacent forest floor by rain or erosion over time, or the substrate might be uh, the result of an overflowing tributary during the rainy season. And as the waters recede later in the year, they evolve into smaller streams sort of meandering through the vegetation. So those little streams that fascinate me. Now, again, in these little instances, the, the substrate that you find may be a mix of soils, sediments, sands, and roots and stuff like that. Almost never just one thing. It's always a variety. <clears throat> these interesting little tributaries are usually shaded by trees at the margins and they often cut you know from miles and miles through dense rainforest the bottoms of these tributaries typically former forest floors are often covered with seed pods leaves twigs etc from the vegetation above and surrounding them now if we examine the shallow tributaries of streams and flooded forest floors which again are my favorite area of interest it's important to note that the volume of water entering the stream helps in part determine the amount and size of the sediment particles and the leaves and the you know uh, branches and seed pods and all that kind of stuff that you'll actually find in in there and that makes sense um that stuff's carried along by currents and comprises the substrate and its contours the mixing of materials not only looks interesting it's a reflection of the diversity of that you know habitat in this little world of decomposing leaves and submerged logs and twigs and seed pods, there's a surprising diversity of life forms. I call it home. And each one of these organisms has managed to eke out an existence and thrive. Now, so-called ephemeral streams, which typically occur only after rain events, which means they don't usually have fish in them unless they're washed into them for more permanent water courses, are pretty remarkable. They're very substrate-centric. Now, look, I don't expect you to set up a tank with a water level that's two inches deep, although I think it would be pretty cool to do that. For most of us, perhaps three and a half inches of depth is something you could work with, maybe. That's about, what, about nine to ten centimeters? Yeah, I think it's totally doable. There's some pretty small commercial aquariums that aren't much deeper than eight inches, that's about 20 centimeters, and you could easily adapt other containers for this purpose and maybe even work a filter in there if you need to. We could do this with some very interesting... South American or Asian habitats as well. Shallow tanks, deep leaf litter, sediment, and some botanicals for good measure. 
Replicating these unique habitats creates functionally amazing aquariums too. I mean, these little bodies of water are very ecologically productive. It's something to think about. It's something to think about in the context of the greater aquarium, how the substrate, how the materials you choose to use on the substrate interacts with and indeed supports the rest of the aquarium. This is something I've come back to over and over and over again because it's something that's so interesting. And when we take our heads out of the purely aesthetic mindset and start thinking about the function of these habitats and looking at the wild habitats instead of last month's, you know, aquarium of the month and instead of mixing, you know, uh, you know, a couple of sand varieties in there and start playing around instead with things like, you know, detritus, decomposing leaf litter, twigs, all that kind of stuff, like you would find in an actual habitat, it, when you do that, it starts getting really, really interesting and really engaging. It's what we've devoted so much time and energy to over the years here at Tannin and what we're going to continue to work with. Because I think this new way of thinking, this understanding of nature as it is, not as we want it to be, is truly the key to evolving the aquarium hobby, the freshwater aquarium hobby at least, into some really exciting new directions. And I really am so happy to have so many of you joining in on this and look forward to many, many more interesting developments and discoveries and experiments with our geeky little community of botanical method aquarists. Thanks for being part of this. And I look forward to seeing the breakthroughs and discoveries that you come up with over the next few years as well. Stay bold, stay excited, stay creative, stay fascinated, stay resourceful, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.